Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi listeners, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. We had a couple weeks off there, sorry, we had some things come up. So this week, we're continuing with our discussion of how the corpus of Joseph Smith's revelations were pointing to a oneness and unity with God and also with one another and how those two things coincide. And today we're talking about a section called Zion as the Sacred Society Reflecting Divine Love. So you start out this section by saying, Nothing contributed more to the Mormon identity than the concept of and hope for Zion, a sacred place, a holy people, and a quality of heart and mind. So I'll tell my exposure to it. So I, you know, I learned about it during regular Sunday school and then like seminary, but I didn't realize that Zion was kind of a, not necessarily a unique Mormon idea, but kind of this, I guess it's biblical, but this idea for this perfect society. I think I was watching The Matrix or something and they're like, we have Zion. I was like, oh, interesting. And then listening to like Bob Marley, he talks about Zion and all that. So where does Zion come from first off? And then what were Joseph Smith's unique takes on the idea of Zion? Zion comes from Mount Zion, which is, if you're in Jerusalem, it's on the, basically the west side of the city. So there's a mountain called Zion, and Zion is the highest mountain where you overlook the city. And it is the place where God is going to come at the second coming for Christians. It is the place where the Messiah will come for Jews, and it represents the meeting of heaven and earth. So Jerusalem is the holy city, and Zion is the highest point. And so it is the place where heaven and earth will meet. For Joseph Smith, the concept of Zion took on immediate new meaning in two respects. You have in Third Nephi, of course, a Zion society, essentially with an order of all things in common being practiced by the Nephites. And it creates of them a holy people who have no divisions, no disputations, no wars for over 300 years. And then we receive later the Book of Moses, in which Zion again exists for Enoch and his people, again a holy city, a people who have all things in common and share, have all things not only in common in terms of material goods, but also in terms of spiritual unity. And this Zion is so great that it can't be held from God's presence, so it is caught up to meet God. And then, of course, the Book of Mormon predicts the coming of Christ to Zion. And so the early Mormon energies were basically aimed at establishing Zion. I mean, you know, the term establishing Zion was kind of the watching call for the earliest converts to the church because they were gathering in one place called Zion, where they would create this city of God that would receive God at the second coming. And so Zion has many dimensions to it. It is a place. It's the center place where God will come and meet his people. It's the center place where God's people reside. And so it's a place. Zion is also an economic system. It's an economic system of having all things in common where those who have will not stand the thought that there would be those among them who don't have. And so they will share their substance out of love for them. It is a quality of heart and mind. 
Zion turns out to be the way of being in the world where we agree on all things because we are so united as one that we are one in heart and mind. Because we're sharing all earthly things, we also share in all heavenly things. Now, I would suppose it goes without saying that Zion is an idyllic place and concept. It is the economic and social system that manifests the way that God sets up his kingdom. And so Mormons were all about establishing God's kingdom on earth through establishing Zion, through creating a center space, a center place where they could meet, through creating the united order or the covenants where they would have all things in common, and by having common beliefs and agreeing with one another. And so they set about to establish Zion. And all of their energies were toward this concept, this ideal, and this reality. Right. Yeah, like you said, it at least was articulated and then drawn from the Book of Moses, which is during the time when Joseph Smith was basically reinterpreting or retranslating the Bible. And so he received the Book of Moses as kind of a replacement for Genesis. Or not a replacement, but his further revelation on the ideas in Genesis. And yeah, you said it's about how Enoch and his city were relating to God. And so let me get your opinion on this, I guess. So I should have probably brushed up on this, but from kind of like a more secular viewpoint, rather than saying like, you know, Joseph Smith had this revelation where he wanted to do this. Some people say that Joseph Smith was influenced by, I don't remember who, but someone, a very prominent person in the church, joined the church and they had a communal. Sidney Rigdon. There you Sidney go. Rigdon had a, he had a system called the family. And the family was an attempt to establish the same kind of having all things in common that Joseph Smith's revelations also established. And so they had this significant precursor in the family that Sidney Rigdon actually attempted to practice. It's one of the things that dreamed Mormonism, I believe. And so, yeah, and, you know, the Oneida community, there were a bunch of communities that were attempting to establish this kind of a community where all things were shared in common. All right. And so, to my understanding, those that was called communalism. And like you said, it was other people had recognized too. And they're like, well, you know, if we're Christians and the way that we're supposed to live together according to the Bible and just kind of the ideal society is what they're going after, saying, you know, all things in common. So, well, remember, it's also reflected in Acts. The earliest Christians had all things in common. And the greatest crime you could commit was not giving everything you had to the church. And if you didn't, apparently God would strike you dead on the spot. Yeah, pretty extreme, especially growing up in a American culture. And granted, this is a rather early America before maybe some more extreme forms of capitalism take hold. But anyway, let's go over two things. I want to go over kind of the basic nuts and bolts of how Zion worked. Okay, the first dimension is Zion worked by gathering everybody to Zion. So... Once a person joined the church, they were required, it was a part of the religion, to join the saints at the center place. At one time it was Kirtland, it then moved to Independence, Missouri, it then moved to Far West, it then moved to Nauvoo. But Mormons now still look to Independence, Missouri as the center place where Zion will eventually be established. There will be a large city with a number of temples as a complex altogether. Joseph actually drafted a plat to show how the complex would be. And so you have this geographical setting. Within the geography, you also have an economic system, and here's how it worked. Everybody would take everything that they had. They would deed all of their property to the presiding bishop. Everything they earned, they would give to the presiding bishop. They would have an accounting where they would sit down with the bishop, 
and they would give everything to the bishop. The bishop would then reallocate everything that was given into the storehouse and into the central funds based on need, uh, not on capacity. So what he would do is, you've got 12 acres, you only need two, so you continue to have 12 acres. I'm going to divvy out the rest of the property to other people. You have 50 bells of hay. You need four for your horses, so here's your four. The rest gets divvied out to everybody else. The idea was that because people loved each other so much that they would work to sustain the poor. And so it was basically a reallocation of resources based upon two things, need and equity. It's not socialism or communism. The church essentially owned all property, but it was given back to be worked and to be gainfully employed by the people. And so there were a number of lawsuits that came about that challenged when people left the church, they wanted their property back in the courts. I look at this, the courts were just wrong at the time, but they always ruled in favor of the Gentiles and gave them their property back, even though they deeded it to the church. So it was very difficult to maintain because you had people who were leaving all the time. But even more difficult is that often property and means would be given to those who just didn't have the ability to really make it grow. I mean, some people are just not cut out to be farmers. Some people just don't know how to handle money. Some people don't know how to make a gain in an economy. You know, some are too old, some are too young, and some just don't have the capacity, and some just don't give a crap. And so those who really were capable saw everything they had worked for being given to people who were much less capable than themselves, often much less intelligent and much less industrious at creating a gain, and they were doing all the work and everybody else was sponging. They didn't like that as, as, you know, this is the capitalist urge. And so this is the kind of thinking that Zion was designed to change. You don't work just for your own benefit. It's not for one's personal gain that we work. We work because we love one another. And I can't stand the thought that there will be someone's poor who goes without. And so I will work extra beyond my needs to create for other people. It turns out that that estimation of human nature was way too optimistic. But it fell apart because the courts wouldn't uphold it because people were too stingy. And, you know, it's like, and you've got it in your notes. They tried to reestablish this kind of economic order when they came to Utah. It actually worked in a couple of places. We have Orderville, Utah, where the United Order existed well into the 20th century. And the people there, at least, were capable of maintaining a bishop storehouse and having what's known as the United Order. So in the United Order, what you do when you join the church is you covenant that you'll give everything you have to the church and you will share it with those who have need. And it's done by covenant, but, you know, darn it, people have a hard time keeping that covenant. And so what happened is, you know, there was a storehouse created in Salt Lake, the Bishop's Storehouse. You can still go see it if you want. The building still stands. In fact, it still stands in a number of places. There's a Bishop's Storehouse in Gunnison, Utah that still stands that you can go see. And Cooperative Mercantile was established. It was a part of the United Order. But there were all these different United Orders set up in the, in the different villages or towns where the Mormons were establishing their settlements in the West. And so there were a number of attempts to establish the economic order of Zion. And some of them were a lot more successful than others. You've heard the famous story that, you know, the person wanted better pants or they wanted their half spoon of milk back or whatever, and they therefore weren't saints and that kind of thing. 
we have all these stories still circulating among us. But the bottom line is that the United Order didn't really create a bottom line. It didn't give enough to make it work. And I think the saints misunderstood what it was about. They thought the purpose of the United Order was to get rich, and that was never its purpose. Now, if everybody worked industriously and everybody shared everything in common, there would be no poor. If people were willing to work for others solely out of love and not out of self-interest, then this is an economic system that can work. It's not communism and it's not socialism because it's not the case that the majority can coerce you to give your property to them so that they can have it their way. You know, the Burger King um, economy is what I call it. It's not a matter of, of people forcing others to cooperate in this kind of a system because everybody consents to it by covenant. It has to be voluntary by everyone who participates in it. And so, you know, in a governmental system where you're born into it and don't have any choice would not reflect really what the United Order was about at all, because the whole point of the United Order was that it was a covenant relationship. And so what we're looking at is an economic system that some want to compare to communism or socialism, but in, in my view, it's miles away. But the real purpose, of, obviously, is to reflect the kind of unity in the economic order that exists among the members of the Godhead where everything that one has, the other has. Our Father in Heaven wants to give us everything that He has. When we are exalted, we will have in common everything that everybody who is divine shares. Everything that our Father in Heaven has is ours and vice versa. So the real purpose was to teach people to love each other unconditionally and to put that love into work by working beyond one's own needs to provide for the poor and for those who couldn't produce as well as others without regard to whether they could produce and return back when one gave. It was to create the kind of giving and grace that comes when there is love. And so, like in Sidney Rigdon's system, it is to break down all family barriers so that everybody's in the family. So, for instance, when we were raising you, I provided you clothing and and food and education and everything you needed, and I never once asked for payment for it. And it didn't matter to me whether you paid me because I love you. And the whole point is that if we really believe that we're brothers and sisters, then we don't have these boundaries where people are outside of the family. We provide to them out of the same love that a parent provides for children in, in that very nature. And so the real purpose of Zion and its economic order is to teach people how to have the same love that the members of the God have had have for one another. It is to be in one another, glorified in the fullness of exalted glory, in the same way that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are. It was to teach us how to love in that way. It failed. And, and you know, we could say in many respects it failed miserably, but I would restate that and say not that Zion failed or the United Order failed or, you know, the entire endeavor failed. We failed. The saints failed. <laughs> okay, They failed to learn the lessons that were there for them to learn. They failed to love in the way that they were called to love. And they failed to keep their covenants. That's how it failed. And so it's not, a, it's not an economic system that failed. It's an entire people who failed to be saints. Well, let me ask you this. Just, I mean, I, I guess I, you stated your opinion, but do you think it might have been setting people up for failure, though? Because... For example, in the Brothers Karamazov, there's a like a sub-story called the Grand Inquisitor. And in that, I mean, there's lots of things going on. But one of the things is there's this church, Catholic church leader, I think, talking to 
Jesus and he says a lot of things, but one of the things he says basically is like you set people up for this failure because you teach this ideal and then say go ahead and live up to this thing, but that's not how humans work. It's impossible for humans to to live this way. And so it's just this way to I don't know, just did it set people up for failure. Is it possible for humans to do this without God being the one that is divvying out the stores and all that? Like, what was this just an exercise? I, I don't know. Like, is, was this a failed revelation? I mean, like, hey, we can do this. Or was God just, in your view, like laughing the whole time? Ha ha ha, let's watch them fail because obviously this can't be done. So it's like, what was the point of that? Well, none of the above. Remember, I don't believe that God has foreknowledge to see what people will freely choose. And so I don't believe that God has the kind of knowledge necessary to say, oh, I'm going to, these people are all going to agree to do this and agree to learn how to love, and they're all going to fail to do so. But could he know that they didn't have the capacity to do so, just because that's not a human thing to, to do, at least within this limited scope? No, I, no, I, think, I think Elder Zosima in Karamazov's famous novel is wrong, okay? I think Zosima is wrong in this respect. We are capable of this kind of love, and we're capable of succeeding in this kind of order. But what it requires is a change of heart, mind, and soul. It requires us truly to see everybody as our brothers and sisters, and it requires us to get that point. In other words, it requires us to have a people who are pure and holy as God is pure and holy. Is that possible? The answer is it is possible. Is it possible that we will fail at it? Of course it's possible. We failed at it. But the bottom line for me is that it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we would fail. It was a contingent reality that happened to, to eventuate. And so, is it hard? The answer is, apparently, it's damn hard with emphasis on damnation. Is it impossible? Of course not. It's been lived before. They succeeded in Orderville for quite a long time. And if people really got the vision and they really had that kind of love because they learned to love in that way, then it can succeed. Is it the best economic system? My response to that is, you're asking the wrong question. That's not even what's at issue. It doesn't matter whether it's a great economic system. I mean, it's kind of like asking, is climbing a mountain freestyle the best way to climb a mountain? The answer is, well, that's a stupid question. It's a way to climb the mountain. And for some people, it's the most exciting way to climb a mountain. But clearly, it's not the only way. No, obviously, it's not the best way if safety is your purpose. But if thrill-seeking and proving that you have capacities almost beyond human capacity is your goal, then that's the best way to do it. And so it depends on what your purposes are as to whether or not it's it's a good thing, okay? Like, we're going towards the end here, but we're still covenanting to obey this law of consecration in the temple ceremony, which we're also kind of talking about in the series. So what's your understanding of the modern interpretation of that? Does tithing now take the place of that because that's my surplus and it's basically just a uniform or what does the law of consecration mean now is it just like i'm promising and then someday i'll do that or is are we supposed to be doing something like that now and i guess that's one question another is if this is really the ideal of god then why haven't we kept trying it so maybe it failed once but it don't, i don't think the church as a whole has like i guess you said brigham young tried a bit and it didn't work out then but why haven't we kept trying if it's important or is it important well it's important, but not the only way to accomplish the goal, okay? And so, I guess, you know, as to your question um, specifically, does the law of tithing replace the law of consecration? And the answer is yes, for now, it's kind of like the law of Moses in relation to Christianity. It's a lesser law, but it's a law that's a lot more livable, and apparently in a capitalistic society is a lot more workable. 
people are willing to give 10%, but 100% tax is really hard to live with, okay? But I don't see tithing as really equivalent to the law of consecration in any respect. We still do it out of love for others. We still do it out of the goodness of, of our hearts because we're committed to God and we're committed to those that we want to assist through giving the tithes. In addition to tithes, we also give contributions to the church and to charities. And I mean, I think virtually everyone I know, at least, when they see a person in need, they're willing also to share money. And now GoFundMe has become the new United Order. <laughs> yeah, nice. You know, so the point is, is that we have a heart of love for our fellow human beings such that we can't stand the thought that a person would starve because they don't have enough, that they would be lesser than because they don't have enough. We can't stand the thought because it's like with you as my children, I couldn't stand the thought that I couldn't provide for you. I never expected anything in return, but the notion that I would consider the possibility of having you go without and me take everything. That was that's unthinkable to me. And so when we truly get the idea that we I mean, we call each other brother and sister when we go to church. This is sister so and so, this is brother so and so. We use the words, we just don't mean it. It's the same when we call ourselves saints. We use the word, but darn it, we all know we're not really saints. You know, it's it's something that we're still striving toward and so we're still taking baby steps and we've got a schoolmaster to teach us rather than actually doing what, you know, Heavenly Father is trying to teach us to do. Except that, maybe we actually do in some respects, if we are mindful and look around us, and we see need and fill it, and we see those who are without, and we give. It's the same thing that King Benjamin taught, you know, we're all beggars. And so if a person puts a petition to us to share, it's not our place to judge, well, this person's a beggar, so I won't give. It may be our place to say this person's an alcoholic, so giving him money to go buy alcohol may not be in his best interest, but there are other ways to give. <laughs> so it's a matter of, of being as wise as we can because we truly love a person and we love one another. And so the fact that we're not living the United Order, the fact that we don't have all things in common shows us how far short we're falling from the effort really to learn what love is. If any person thinks I've got love down, Imagine yourself taking everything you've got and giving it to a person to redistribute, and you only get back sufficient for your needs, because the purpose of Zion was that each would have sufficient for their needs, and if everybody produced a lot more than was sufficient for their needs, everybody got rich. And then I kind of asked this, but then my question, I superseded with the other one. So when you personally are in the temple and you covenant to obey the law of consecration, what does that mean to you? The law of consecration means that I stand ready, willing, and even hopefully able to share everything that I have with God if I'm asked. So if the bishop comes to me and says, we have a family that's in need, I need what you can give for this family. And I say, well, you know, I've got a lot to give. Well, they don't need that much. I only need this much. And if I don't have enough, then we'll group share, okay? It means I'm sta- I stand ready that if the prophet of the Lord said, I've have a revelation, it's time for everybody to take all their property and deed it to the church, take your bank accounts and remit them to the presiding bishop, and we will give you back sufficient for your needs. But we have too many among us who don't have sufficient for their needs, and we have to take care of them, and so we're going to spread this out and expect everybody to be a gainfully employed hard worker in Zion. And that's what it means. I stand ready to do that. The problem is, is you know darn well that if that happens, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. That's a hard one. 
Fair enough. I mean, that's probably how we all feel, but I just was wondering your interpretation. All right, so let me just finish off with this last quote here. And again, just for the context of what we're doing. So this is just to show another example of how everything in Joseph Smith's teachings and revelations was trying to point towards this oneness of unity with all of each other and with the Godhead in Zion was a really big reflection of that. So you say, Zion is a means of bringing about the theosis of God's people, of recreating a people that is holy as God is holy, a people who are God's. Zion is the perfect reflection of a society made over in God's image, a flawless manifestation of God as a plurality of persons, united as one agency in love. So I had Thomas J. Ord on a while back, and he has this idea about uncontrolling love of God. But the idea that is coming up here is that with his idea of what the kingdom of God or uh, eschatology can mean, in his point of view, it brought up the idea that, well, humans are going to have to be the ones to bring about and establish the kingdom of God, rather than God coming in and all of a sudden everything's fine. No, I agree with that. So we have this prayer that has a, a line in it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would reorder that and say, thy will be done on earth so that thy kingdom can come, because we do thy will on earth as we will in heaven, so the earth will be heaven. And so we are the ones that are called to prepare this earth to be ready for God's presence. Until we make it so that God's law is kept on earth, the kingdom can't come because the kingdom comes when we're ready for it. And so I guess in that respect, I would agree with Thomas J. Ward, if that's his idea. We're the ones who prepare Zion. We're the ones who must be prepared to receive God and to receive Zion and for God to receive us into his bosom. And until we're ready to be in God's presence, that's not going to happen. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.